Daniel Ortiz in Angelo, Texas. We had four large financial unexpected emergencies and I knew that I needed something to give us a little more breathing room. And when he mentioned we can skip two house payments and wipe out credit card debt and loan debt, so that's exactly what I did. I called them and it did change everything. Diane, she was awesome, she was professional, and the important thing with her is she listened. That's what made all the difference in the world. She was patient and anytime that I needed to talk to her, she was there, she texted back. It was a different experience from any other place. Well, I can tell you the difference that it made was over $80,000 for us. It freed up that much. My credit score went up 126 points with Save with Conrad, which made it an 802. My name is Daniel Ortiz, and I freed up $80,000 with SaveWithConrad.com. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lenders. Welcome to something to wrestle with. Brooks Pritchard. Well, you know. That's not a rib. She pooted. There's no box of gimmicks. Rumor and innuendo. I don't deal in rumor and innuendo. Was he there? I was there. I don't give a shit. I ain't scared. I ain't scared to shit. Fuck him. You, Bruce. Pritchard. March 22nd. It's announced that the WWF had purchased WCW. That happens on the Torch website, and the Torch is who I used for all of my research this week. Uh, shout out to my good friend, the Greensboro Jackoff himself, Mr. Bruce Mitchell. PWTorch.com is where you can see more great content like the stuff I'm going over today. Uh, the Wall Street Journal covered it the very next day on the 23rd. And supposedly the executives and attorneys worked until the wee hours of that night on Thursday morning, uh, to get a short form agreement in place. And the speculation at the time that was reported was that it was somewhere between 10 to $15 million. Uh, but in recent years, we've heard those numbers fluctuate depending on who you ask from two to 4 million. So before we talk about money and you tell me we're not talking about money, uh, tell me when you first knew for sure. Hey, we're really a player in this thing because it came out in January that you guys had made offers, but tell me about that. You know what you heard back then, maybe in November, December, January. And then when you knew in March, oh shit, this is a real thing. Well, I found out it was a real thing. Probably that Tuesday or Wednesday before it happened. Did you, what did you hear in late 2000, early January about Vince possibly making a bid? I don't remember hearing anything serious at that time other than there were feelers put out there, but there were ridiculous numbers that were reported at that time. 50 to 80 million. And, and there, then, yeah, he was not interested in that at all. Sure. I mean, there's no sense in it. No. Um, the, the interest, just so it's clear, what we were interested in was if there was a possibility that it could remain on TNT, the, the time slot was interesting uh being on another network was interesting and being able to take the brand and expand it on an already established time slot and already established network so 
that was attractive at that time. When we found out that was not really going to be a possibility, it changed to the library. Um, so when did you know, hey, this is really going to happen? You said the Tuesday before. That, well, really, we didn't till it was done on that Wednesday night. And as you said, it did go into the wee hours. And that was Stu Snyder, who was the WWF CEO at the time. And Stu had previously worked for TBS. He, he worked for Cartoon Network. Oh, wow. Okay. And Stu was the CEO. Great guy. And during all this negotiation back and forth, the guys that TBS had reached out to Stu because here we are, the largest wrestling company in the world, whether or not we were interested, would we like to buy it? Right. And also looking to Stu for some advice and what they should do. And the offer came up, and then here we were. That's kind of interesting. Uh, and I take it that they contacted him because if you're trying to unload this thing, who the fuck else even knows what to do with it? Correct. I mean, it's really a yeah. unique deal. Um, so when do you first uh, you, you, you hear about it, and what does that sound like? Um, what's Vince say? You know, Goddamn, pal. Well, okay, but let me let me rewind this to a little bit, just so you understand where, where we come from. When Vince bought a casino in Vegas, I'm sitting at home and get a phone call. Hey, pal, we bought a casino. What the hell? No one knew. No one even knew Vince was in Vegas. And he went out and bought the damn Debbie Reynolds casino. So there were, you know, a lot of things, you know, at times that weren't discussed. It weren't, just happens. Weren't discussed and just happened. And you're sitting there going, did you know that? And everybody's going, did you know that? Did you know that? And he would go off on a whim at times. Obviously, in his mind, he knew what he wanted to do and. And had, had and he a did vision, it. and he and he did it, and that's the way that Vince operates. So, to hear early on, well, yeah, we'll we'll throw out a bit at WCW. That you hear those things all the time. When I heard we're going to buy the uh, restaurant there in Times Square, and we're going to have a WWF themed restaurant. Goddamn, pal, it's going to be the WWF restaurant. It'll be bigger than Planet Hollywood, bigger than Hard Rock. And like, oh, okay, great. Next thing you know, you're <laughs> doing a grand opening in Times Square, the most expensive property in Manhattan. And so you you're shocked constantly, but then you learn how not to be shocked. So it was just kind of another day at the office. Okay, we're gonna buy WCW. How does he tell you? Or I mean, here's my here's my question. In my head, he at least he goes to a couple of confidants and says, "Hey, what do you think about this?" He asked what we thought about purchasing, uh, possibly purchasing the brand. Who is we? We. I was a part of it. Uh, Stephanie, obviously, Shane, Kevin Dunn, uh, Brian Gewertz. I believe Michael Hayes was there. I don't know for sure. I don't remember. Paul Heyman was there, and wait, 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 wait. this is March. And yes. Heyman's there. Yes, Heyman was and there. And he's involved in this meeting. He was involved in it 
for now, the Vince reason, wanted to pick his brain and see what he thought. The reason that's shocking to me, he had just debuted as an announcer on Monday Night Raw. ECW had not yet even ceased operations and filed bankruptcy. That wouldn't happen until April. And he was in the meeting. He was a Vi- part of the creative team at that time. When Vince said, uh, so he can, wait a minute. He walks in a creative meeting and says, what do y'all think of about WCW? Well, he pulled a few of us out and asked us, yeah. And am I to guess that this is in the big conference room on the top floor? No, this was actually at the television studio in the conference room there. Okay. And so you guys are around a big table and Vince is at the head and he goes around the room and says, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? Pretty much. So carry me through. What, what, what does Shane and Stephanie think? They were for it. And thought it would be a good idea. Again, it all depended upon what the conditions were, what the price was, sure. what, what we got for the price. And, and at that point, you don't really know. We had no clue. Yeah. We, we didn't have any clue other than you the know, you, you know, you library get... was attractive. Right. The, the lure of having the name, the brand, the, the logo. Name, the brand it was like, okay, you know, they've kicked our ass before. Maybe we can reposition the brand and build it to be viable again so so you guys all have those type of discussions maybe we could make a show sure okay so it's just a free form round table what if yeah and i'm sure vince has in his head what he wants to do but he just wants to hear he wants yeah he's the kind of, he'll he'll take an idea from anybody carlos the janitor doesn't matter what about uh pat patterson what did he think pat wasn't there okay uh what did Heyman think well sir WCW is a dead brand. It's dead. And, you know, he just, I don't know. He just kind of. Uh, so he shit on the idea. Everybody else is pro. Paul did kind of. Yeah. Paul, Paul buried it. And I, Why? Think, I think in Paul's, in Paul's burial, I think that, and this is Bruce saying, this is not what Paul said, nor have I had any conversation with Paul. My interpretation of Paul's burial was that I think Paul felt that Vince should have done that with EC, uh, ECW. WCW is a dead brand, but ECW was a dead brand. To what with and ECW? Invest millions invest, of dollars? You know, whatever money he was going to pay for WCW, take that same money, give it to keeping ecw alive and and that's my interpretation that's my conjecture of what i kind of think that the underlying i'm feeling, a huge i'm a huge ecw mark as you know but uh the number of eyeballs that saw and recognized wcw compared to ecw is two totally different animals true but you had the owner of ecw sitting at the table sure and and paul which, so vince hears this and and just knows to take it with a grain of salt but again, he wanted to listen. He was interested in Paul's opinion. Uh, the most popular idea, though, kind of the common idea at the table is, let's give WCW a show and create our own competition with it. Try Correct. to redo something. Yes. Uh, so then the the show, you know, or the, the deal is made in the wee hours of the night. Uh, is this something that we would have, you know, there's the uh, the famous McDivitt. Would he have been involved in this, or is this not the group of attorneys that Vince would lean on for that? No, this was more the in-house attorneys. Jerry might have been involved in it. I don't know. But it was mainly Stu and uh, I believe Frank Serpy. I know. Well, I know Frank Serpy was involved in it. Frank Serpy was uh, the head of the finance 
I think he was ahead at that time. Might have been Augie, might have been Frank, but I know Frank was involved in the transition. Was there any gamesmanship to hiring a guy who used to work for Turner to be your CEO for WWF? Stu? Yeah. He worked for Cartoon Network. I mean, it wasn't like he was in WCW or anything like that, but he was a bright guy. He was. Somebody. But he's familiar with the inner workings of Turner Broadcasting. Yeah, but that didn't matter at that point. Well, I just didn't know. On. We had all, no, it was he was because he's not a he wrestling a a, guy. No, he had a hell of a resume for had television. A hell of a resume, yes, without a doubt. Um, I'm gonna ask because real time, the number that comes out at the time is ten to fifteen million. Depending on who you ask, more recently it's two to four million. Just you know, not up or down. <laughs> it sure as hell wasn't ten to fifteen. How do you like that? See, I just talk numbers with you. Was it was it less than four? Yeah. Okay. Was it more than two? I'm telling you. Okay. So it's less than four. Um, it wasn't nearly as much as everybody thought. When you hear the number, who do you hear it from? Well, we didn't hear a number. You know what? I did not hear a number till after the fact and was shocked. I was shocked. Because you'd been hearing all these huge numbers. You'd been hearing about what Fusion, you know, like said, the $60 million, $80 that, million. Dollars that's and, what I'm saying. Like, and you're thinking, oh, my God, how much did we pay for this thing? Right. And then when you hear what the actual number was, and you go, wow, okay, cool. Roll Tide. I didn't say Roll Tide. That would be a misquote. Yeah. But I, that's what I would have said had I known you at that time. And Did you partly think, um, well, goddamn, pal, for that, I would have bought it. Sure. I mean, <laughs> that would not have been difficult to pull that kind of money together for a deal like that, I don't think. No, not at all. I mean, that's crazy. I mean, especially when you look at how much money went into the development of the network that we enjoy now for only nine ninety nine right. a month. This is a bargain. Sure. Uh, when do you know what all you're getting? We didn't. And we knew that we were getting the library, but... The due diligence hadn't taken place. We hadn't had discovery. We didn't really know what was there. Let's run through it just, you know, like a third grader. They rent office Well, space. hang on. I, I'm sorry. I'm going to answer your question uh, a little bit differently. We knew that we were not we were not going to assume any of their debt, and we knew that we were not going to assume any talent contracts. That whatever we did with talent, we would redo under the WWF name, we would not, because we had no idea what they were. So instead of buying the company, what you really bought were physical assets. Correct. The logo. Right. And the library. Right. Um, we brought a bunch of, bunch of different but uh, when you IPs. Buy the, and when you buy like the that. company, though, you inherit the debt. And so to, to just, you know, kind of you know, do, a, do a fire sale here. Correct. Um. So let's run through this. Turner owns all the real estate. So WCW doesn't own any land or buildings, uh, but they did own, you know, silly shit like rings. No, that's not silly for a wrestling company to own wrestling rings. No, but I was, for you, when you're talking about, you know, millions of dollars. Yeah, they own, they own wrestling rings. I mean, we got the rings. We got belts some old... and, you know, entrance sets. and uh, Yeah, I don't think we really even took much of their sets we we did take their their trainer boxes that they had like the big crates that you see on um 
concerts and things. They roll around backstage. They had some nice trainer setups. Um, well, where do the rings go? To the warehouse, and some of them went to Talent. I believe Rock got one in Florida. I think I think Taker got one in Texas. Um, I think Booker T ended up with one. I'm fascinated. But, but Booker T ended up with his, I think, from Mark to, to Booker. From The Undertaker? Yes. Okay. I'm fascinated by a WWF talent like The Undertaker getting a WCW ring. I don't know why. I mean, I get this is a dumb Mark question, but outside of like taking bumps or something, what could he really do with that? The ropes are different. It's a different size. You know, as a wrestling fan, I get this is a dumbass question. I've always been told WCW rings were smaller, WWF rings were bigger, and that the ropes were totally different, they're cable, so it's not like you could do flippy shit off of it and it translate to the exact way it would be in a WWF ring, and it seems like your timing would be off if the ring was bigger or Yeah, smaller. that's true, and, and all of that is true, but it was a place to take bumps, and if you're going to be recuperating from an injury, you could go in and wrestle around, take bumps, things like that. Not ideal, like Undertaker, for example. Uh, ended up with the WWE ring. So, um, like I said, I think Booker ended up getting uh, some of those rings eventually. But it was there. We figured we might be able to use them. And we did use some of them for spot shows where we needed smaller rings, things of that nature. Wow. Use them for developmental, some of the places that had smaller venues. But I just mean in terms of a lot of, you know, a lot of, like if you bought a construction company, you're getting a bunch of machinery, you're getting heavy equipment, you know, you're getting We got stuff. rings. You got rings. We got rings. Um, anything else you can remember you guys buying and getting possession of that you remember thinking, this is kind of cool or this is kind of silly? No, not that I can really remember. Uh, do you, um, you've always been a title belt guy, like our great sponsor, Leather by Dan. Do you remember any of the belts you get, you guys got, and, and remember thinking this is kind of cool that we have this? No. Okay. <laughs> Honestly, no. They were. I they mean, that's were, the only thing I remember being on TV that was really WCW. Aside, was, aside from the big gold belt, there weren't really any cool belts. Yeah. And they, it, it's neat to see Shawn Michaels with that belt and The Rock with that sure. belt. I mean, that's kind of fun. Without a doubt, that's that part's cool, but it was. The rest of them were just belts. You know, they're yeah. just props. Yeah. You know. All right, folks. We are here in the catacombs, the bowels, if you will, of the Joe Lewis Arena in Detroit, Michigan, where The Undertaker has just defeated Hulkamania. And you, Mr. Bear, you have declared that Hulkamania, as we know it, is now dead. Oh, yes, Mean Gene. Oh, yes, Hulkster will not pose anymore. He has gone on to another life, but the services are not finished. They will end right here tonight in texas oh yes where my undertaker will deliver last rites oh yes you big yellow tan and red motherfucker you <laughs> oh man that's so good you know it's fun that we're watching this too because we just recently 
most of us at least had a chance to catch uh, Steve Austin talking to the undertaker here on the network. And they talk so much about the early days of the undertaker. And this is really shitting and getting as a reminder, the undertaker beat Hulk Hogan for the world title. I'll take a look at this. Look into the coffin, Mr. Okerlund. It's phenomenal. What a great shot. Very well done here. They're talking about, you know, Hulkamania being in this coffin from survivor series. Of course, we've covered survivor series, 1990 in our archives. Be sure to check that out at something to But one year later, one year after the debut of the character, he beats Hulk Hogan for the world title, which is really only an honor that had been bestowed to one other man, the ultimate warrior back at WrestleMania six in 1990. So, you know, you, you roll through those championship years, 84, 85, 86, 87, 88, 89. And the first major loss that Hogan suffers for the title, you know, besides the whole dispute with the, the double referee thing on NBC is a pinfall loss to the ultimate warrior. And now again, here in 1991 with the undertaker and man, look at this. What a great treat. I feel bad that we're talking over gorilla monsoon and Bobby, the brain. This is my favorite duo of WWF commentators in history. I think it's a lot of people's favorite duo. You know, you go back and for old time fans, it was either Jesse and Vince or Bobby and gorilla. I mean, I really enjoyed Gorilla and, and, and Jesse as well, but there's something about Bobby Heenan that especially, I think there is a a whole group of guys who are like my age and we've just sort of grown into appreciating the greatness of Bobby Heenan, you know, that maybe we didn't pick up on as a kid because we were just cheering for our favorites. But as an adult, man, you can't help, but look at what this guy was doing and think nobody was at his level. No, Bobby was, I think, amongst his peers as well. Longtime fans, they have always looked at Bobby Heenan as being the greatest manager of all time. And no one living today, in my opinion, would dispute that from a working standpoint and just being able to get talent over his own as a heel. He was able to get baby faces over in a big way by putting them over and knocking them at the same time, knocking them in a negative, positive way that it was an art form for someone that truly got it. Bobby was a master of that. By the way, once upon a time, another famous, very tall wrestler would say that he made dragging the belt to the ring famous long before Steve Austin. I think the undertaker has something to say about that because here he comes dragging the belt to the ring. And we've talked about, you know, how you got him into the company and, and your whole idea and the, just the development of this character. And one year later, here he is. This is a guy who talked about on Steve Austin's podcast on the WB network, the broken skull sessions, which I highly recommend. Uh, it should have been called dead man talking, but whatever, um, that he wasn't sure what they were going to do with this character. And, and, and wasn't sure what, how he was going to be, what his character was going to be. He had been mean Mark Callis for the NWA and WCW and, um, Ollie Anderson famously told him you, nobody will ever buy a ticket to see you wrestle. And now here he is as the undertaker and he has the top belt in the entire industry worldwide without question in December of 1991 and has the distinction of being one of two guys to beat Hulk Hogan for the belt. The other being the ultimate warrior who's no longer here. Of course he was sent home after SummerSlam 91, 
you see the fans going wild here, but this match is not without controversy. Of course, at SummerSlam or survivor series, rather when Hulk Hogan is up in the tombstone position, the undertaker is ready to pile drive him, drop him on his own head. As they say, Ric Flair sneaks in slides, a folding chair underneath and, and it makes that pile driver even more devastating, not just a regular tombstone, but a tombstone on a chair. And I can't believe this is real, but, uh, Dave Meltzer actually wrote about this in the observer and said, Flair then put a chair in the ring and undertaker gave to a Hogan, a tombstone pile driver on the chair for the pin. When watching the show, I thought the best work of the entire show was Hogan selling the tombstone after the match was over. It took him several minutes to get to his feet and he looked really groggy and his selling was completely realistic. As it turns out, he was really injured, apparently by the tombstone on the chair. After viewing it back several times, it does appear that Hogan's head never came near the chair. However, Undertaker may have jammed Hogan's neck with his knee since Hogan was hospitalized legit all night long with a jammed neck. Yeah. I think, and I could be wrong, but I believe the rumor and innuendo is that the undertaker being a relatively young guy in the business and really excited and proud to have this opportunity, just one year in the company after being told a year prior, you'd never sell a ticket in the business. He flew his whole family to survivor series to see this big pay-per-view to see this big match against Hulk Hogan because he knew the creative. Oh my God. I'm beating Hulk Hogan on pay-per-view for the world wrestling federation title. And there's a little bit of a stink on the title win because afterwards Hogan legitimately allegedly feigns an injury and goes to the hospital. And when he watched the replay back to Meltzer's point, he's nowhere near the chair, but Hogan that night convinced everyone, no, he's legitimately hurt and went to the hospital and it sort of put a stink on the title win of the big proud moment for the real life Mark Calloway. And I don't know that Ho that Hogan and undertaker ever really saw eye to eye ever again, according to the rumor and innuendo you, you weren't there, but you, you were around both of these guys for a long time. Tell me what you heard about survivor series 91 and what you remember about this match in particular with maybe that being the underlying heat between the two. Uh, I heard all that and I watched it back several times and it looked like, uh, that taker probably could have gotten run over by a Mack truck. And he had such a tight hold of Hogan that there was nothing that was going to happen to Hulk. Um, it is what it is. And it couldn't have looked safer is the point. And when you go yeah, back to me you, yeah. and, and to Taker, and I think that it was, I think that knowing Taker, he would never, ever intentionally hurt anybody. And certainly he was going to be extra careful that night with the Hulk golden Hogan. Goose. The and, golden goose. you know, it looked good to me. By the way, look at the tremendous work of the Undertaker here, doing the choke and rolling his eyes back into his head. If you haven't yet, I can't believe I'm advocating this because... I wanted so desperately at Starcast to have you get dragged these stories out of the undertaker. It wasn't to be, but the, the broken skull session, which I can't put over enough. When you're done with this, go watch that on the W network. It's phenomenal. 
Undertaker talked about how, when he became this Undertaker character, he had to sort of change the way he thought about wrestling, what he could do and what he should do became two different things. Yes. He can run the ropes real fast and jump real high for clotheslines, but would the undertaker do that? And you really saw the undertaker as a character and Mark Calloway as a performer doing the undertaker come into his own in this first year, because you see how slow and methodical and almost Michael Myers and Jason, you know, the, the real horror movie film franchises, you see how slow he's working. You go back and watch him as mean Mark Callis, totally different presentation. He's clicking on all cylinders here. Is he not? Absolutely. And it, that just goes to, to the talent of Mark and just how good he really was that he was able to adapt. And we took all of the things that he did extraordinarily well and we would incorporate them into the match at the right point. Suddenly. So he would work very methodically and slow, but when it was time, just like in a movie, he's on you. Exactly. And he would turn it up and you'd go, holy fuck, where did that come from? That's what made him so dangerous. And that's what made him so appealing to the audience. This is such a phenomenal, you know, pay-per-view to me because it, I was at, maybe the peak of my fandom here from a WWF standpoint, because I couldn't believe somebody finally beat Hulk Hogan, um, in real life. And I know I'm probably putting you in a spot here to betray some confidence as a peek behind the curtain, but that's the format of the show. Do you believe the undertaker had some animosity to Hulk Hogan for a certain period of time? Maybe not today, but once. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think he did. I think that, you know, in, in his, to him, this was the biggest moment of his career. And, and, um, I think that, yes, he did. So the undertaker's contention is that Hogan wasn't really hurt and he was quote unquote working and shitting on his big moment. I mean, do you believe that? In your- I don't I, uh, see. I don't think that Hulk was shitting on his moment. I just think that you know, whatever happened, happened. And again, not being there, I've never talked to Hulk about it. So I, I don't know. Um, that's the thing. Like, I don't want to believe that about Hulk because I mean, you've talked about this before with other interesting polarizing characters in wrestling. I tend to treat people the way they treat me. And he's always been, and I'm talking about the, I mean, Hulk Hogan. So cool to me. I can't imagine that he would be intentionally shitty to anyone. I understand that in the course of business, sometimes business is business, pal. Goddamn. I get it. Whatever. Um, but it doesn't feel like something Hogan would do unless, and we've talked about this before, you know, when, when Owen Hart kicked Shawn Michaels in the back of the head, Shawn Michaels went to the hospital that night and faked injuries and worked the hospital and guys, the NWA did that too, where they felt like it was necessary to sort of keep kayfabe. So on the one hand, maybe you think, well, Hogan's just trying to keep kayfabe and really sell the angle that the only way Hulkamania could really get beat is if he legitimately injured him. But really the worst, or maybe one of the worst, one of the two worst things that a wrestler can do is earn a reputation as being dangerous as someone who's not going to take care of you, someone who will hurt you. And, and, and to have a little bit of that stink on the undertaker character, just one year in not good, right? Yeah, and I don't believe that that there was. I really and truly don't believe that anybody thought that he was dangerous in any way, shape, or form. 
did you ever hear again? Nobody told me this. I'm just asking questions to my friend. Did you hear of Vince admonishing the undertaker after the match? Or I mean, was he cutting a promo on him? Like, how could you? God damn it. You've killed the golden goose or whatever in real life. No, no conversation not, like no. that happened. Nope. Okay. Nope. Not at all. And I think that they, they watched it best of my knowledge that they watched it back and went, okay. Let's go find out what happened. But um, I don't think that anybody, anybody thought that Taker was dangerous by any stretch of the imagination. We should mention that uh, Meltzer was freestyling in the newsletter that Dale Wilkes was probably going to wind up coming here. Um, do you remember, you were at least friendly with Dale. Do you remember Dale being discussed as a, as a possibility of coming in here? Because we wouldn't see him here for what, like six years? No, uh, I don't know because I hadn't even started it. I knew Dell from his stormtrooper days in AWA when we had reached out to him before, but um, I hadn't even started in global yet, right? Global yet. So Dell was still still doing well in in global, and it was actually well, that was ugly. Um, it was actually at it was this evening. Um, in Texas that I got the phone call from Paul Heyman telling me that Eddie Gilbert was taking the book in global and wanted to bring me in after the first of the year. Do you immediately run to Vince and say, by the way, I just got an offer to do this. Do you want to hire me now? No, he had already told me I wasn't coming back. Okay. Tell the truth. How many of us maybe felt a little miserable after the holiday? fireworks went off we had a few cold ones and maybe you were struggling same luckily a game-changing product called z-bionics is here to help you want to enjoy those drinks on vacation without wasting the next day in bed well z-bionics is the nine dollar travel insurance that you'll actually use i mean let's face it after a long night with drinks i just don't bounce back the next day like i used to and now I have to make a choice. I can either have a great night or a great next day. That is until I found Zbiotics. I absolutely love this product. It's been a game changer in my world and in Bruce's world. You see, Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle the rough mornings after drinking. And here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut it's that byproduct not dehydration that's to blame for your next day and isn't something we've all heard like it feels like everybody says oh you just gotta chug a bunch of water buddy that doesn't do it you see zbiotics produces an enzyme to break down that toxic byproduct and poof you feel a lot better it really is designed to work just like your liver but in your gut where you really need it the most so here's the steps. You drink Zbiotics before drinking, and then of course we want you to drink responsibly and then enjoy the night with confidence that you're gonna feel much different than you imagined the next day. And I have to admit, I was a skeptic about this. We tried it a few years ago. I'll never forget, we were actually on location in Nashville and uh, both Eric and I maybe had a few too many, but we said, you know what? Let's try Zbiotics up front, dude. We were back in Adam on the sales floor the next morning, like nothing happened. 
It made such a big difference. I couldn't wait to tell Bruce and everybody else about it. And now our whole team can stay on top of their game, all because we all know about Z-Biotics. I am 100% convinced that this actually works. I want you to try it. Savor the moment. Let Z-Biotics do the rest. Go to zbiotics.com slash STWW and you'll get 15% off your first order when you use the code STWW at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with a 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember, head to zbiotics.com slash STWW and use the code STWW at checkout for 15% off. And we thank you, Zbiotics, for sponsoring today's episode. I'm glad you mentioned uh, Stephanie because Stephanie went on record as saying that Paul was the first writer that she ever had to suspend without pay. And she says it was because Paul was behaving like a child. What's the backstory on all this? What can you tell us about the suspension? <laughs> well, I don't think he was suspended without pay. Now, she may have said that, but I don't think he was suspended without pay. Okay. Paul had a habit of trying to get young disciples around him. Paul always liked to have a step and fetch it. He, he liked to have young boys that would do his bidding, go get him his his laundry and go get him his Kung Pao chicken, extra pow, easy on the peanuts, make them salted extra chicken, sir. And... Paul would uh, just recruit. So anytime that a new writer would come in or a writer's assistant would come in, Paul would take them under his wing. I will show you the way, my good man. And there was one in particular uh, by the name of uh, Dominic that he was a nice young guy, but a little goofy. But Paul had chosen Dominic as his new disciple, and Paul had gotten up and, and, and kind of grandstanded in the writer's room about, this young man is trying hard, and he wants to go out, and he wants to prove himself. So I would like for everyone to listen to his ideas with a full heart and give him an opportunity to contribute to this team. So Whatever Dominic does, I want everyone to give him his attention and, and, and listen. Now, Dominic, you had an idea. Please pitch it to the room. And this was at a time when everybody had kind of started seeing through some of Paul's stuff, and, and Paul wasn't the most popular guy in the room. And Dominic made a pitch for a women's match in which the women would be stripped down completely naked in the ring. And everybody's like, okay, Dom, then what? What do you do? Well, uh, no, 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 Dominic, what, what do you do? I mean, they're, they're, they're naked. What? You can't have naked women. Nah, man, they got nip covers. And when he said nip covers, that just everybody in the room blew a gasket, especially Brian Gewertz. Well, Heyman took this situation and of course blows up starts cutting a promo on uh brian for disrespecting dominic and disrespecting these young writers who are trying to be a part of this team and trying to 
pitch ideas, but yet you make fun of them. And Brian fired back on Paul. And when they did, it was kind of like two uh, umpires or, or an umpire and a, and a ball, uh, ball player when they bump chess. And they come across the room at each other and kind of bump chess. And, and I wasn't really paying attention at this point to the argument because it was silly at best. But when they bumped chess, there was one of the writers in the room, a guy named Pete Doyle, and Pete jumps up, and Pete gets in between them and is holding them back and like, hey, calm down, calm down. And, it, and it, I thought it was a pinch fight. It looked like two girls in a pinch fight. So they got separated, and, and uh, <coughs> somehow Stephanie found out about it, and they get called into Stephanie's office. And reprimanded. And the part that and they, they were both suspended. Okay. But the part that pissed me off more than anything was I was supposed to go home that day. And I was supposed to go home on like a three o'clock flight. And I was told I couldn't go home until Stephanie met with the team. So I had to catch an earlier, I mean, a later flight to have Stephanie come into the room to tell us that Paul and Brian were going to be sent home for three weeks and that we were to have no contact with them. And in the all-time classic Michael Hayes line, to this day, the best, and this is partly where we get the doot, doot, doot from, Michael blurts out, but he didn't do it. He did it, pointing at Heyman. He started it, Stephanie, doot, doot, doot. My goodness. And the whole room was like, here, it was like you were in third grade. And he started the fight. So, yeah, they, they got to go home. And still get, they still got paid. I'm sure they still got paid. They got paid and, and got to go home and didn't have to do shit. Is this around the same time that the phone call story happens, the conference call story the conference call story happened during during the suspension time, and Paul was the phone call story, folks, for those of you who don't know what the hell we're talking about. We would have conference calls over the weekend where you would dial into a number, and then you had a code, you dial into the code, and everybody gets on a conference call. So when you get on the call, you had to announce your name. So it would say, Bruce has just joined the conference. Conrad has just joined the conference. Vince has just joined the conference. When you would drop off and you would hang up, it would tell you, Bruce has left the conference. Conrad has left the conference. So we're having a conference call on this Saturday. This is during time that Paul was suspended from the company. And we used the same conference call number because it was only us that had that number. And we're in the middle of a creative meeting, and all of a sudden we hear a burp has left the conference. There was no name. Mm. So then says, roll call. Who's here? Who was that? Who dropped off? Roll call. Everybody, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. Everyone was there. But someone had been on and had left the conference. The other thing about those conference calls is when you dial in, it logs your number, where you're calling from. Mm. 
the call came from a Scarsdale residence that was traced back to um, last name Heyman. <laughs> it was his mom and dad's house. Correct, Amundo. That's amazing. And Paul denied it. Paul Paul denied it for the longest time. And I uh, just told recently that he was like, ah, oh, yeah, I was on. What did that sound like when he was uh, denying it? I was not on the phone, sir. It was not me. That's Paul, it, it got traced back to your parents' house. It was not me, sir. But, but Paul, I, there, it, it went back to your parents' house. Not it. Well, let's talk about why Paul was removed. Stephanie has said that Paul wasn't effective on the writing team for whatever reason. And, and I find that hard to believe. But Paul has said that, you know, he wasn't maybe mature enough to be in that environment at the time. I, I guess, you know, he could be pretty vocal and pretty opinionated and, and had a hard time, I guess the right word is assimilating can you speak to why he, you think he was removed and, and why Stephanie would go so far as to say he wasn't effective? Yeah, because Paul had everybody else doing the work for him. Paul would, like, shoot out ideas and talk about, you know, the big picture and then kind of pawn it off to Dave Lagana or Pants or, or whoever else was working under him at the time and have them come back with a show. And he would push it off so late he didn't meet deadlines he would be late for Vince meetings it was a combination of things that Paul was almost begging to get off of the team and begging to just be a talent and not have to worry about writing the show from week to week because writing the show from week to week also came with heat the boys if they weren't being used they're coming back to you and they're saying hey why aren't you using me why aren't you doing this so he wasn't, you know, he wasn't being heralded as, as the genius and the savior at this time, and it just wasn't working. And the, the rest of the team members were starting to complain, and, and you could see through it. You Stephanie saw through it. You mentioned Lagana and Pants. Have you already talked about Paul's disciples? Yes. Uh, and, and would you list them all, I mean, as being Pants and, and Lagana and Dominic? Yeah, those are the three main ones during his tenure that he had that he really tried to bring, bring into the Heyman fold. This Mother's Day and Father's Day, look no further for the perfect gift than PaintYourLife.com. It's worked for me every time, and when I say every time, I mean it. I've used PaintYourLife.com to bring tears to the eyes of my mom, my dad, even my father-in-law. And right now I'm ordering one for my mother-in-law, all from paintyourlife.com. My mother-in-law's life is her dog, Missy. And this year, my wife and I knew exactly what to get my mother-in-law for Mother's Day, a painting of Missy. It really is that simple too. All we needed was a, a picture from our phone. Boom. We're up and running. You see, paintyourlife.com can really create a hand-painted portrait to fit almost any budget. And it's the perfect gift for your mother, your father, or both. I've used it, as I said, on almost every person in my life. I've given these to my wife. I've given it to my cousin, my mom, my dad, my father-in-law. If I'm looking to give a truly meaningful, personable gift, I know the paintyourlife.com has my back and they're going to make it easy. 
you can go ahead and start the entire process in less than five minutes. And what's really cool about paintyourlife.com is they can even combine photos. Maybe you want to put two people who never met in one of your favorite vacation spots. You can do that. Just upload the photos. Bam. You're good to go. Maybe grandpa never got to meet his grandson with paintyourlife.com. That can become a reality. You can put people and places together, even if they've never been there. You pick the artist, you pick the medium. Do you want oil, acrylic, watercolor, charcoal? You can even go ahead and pick out an awesome frame. The whole process to get started, as I said, takes less than five minutes, and you can actually get your painting in as little as two weeks. But you work hand-in-hand with the artist to get every detail perfect. If you're looking to get those waterworks going, to have your mom or your dad tear that paper and just almost be overcome with emotion, that's what I got, and I've never gotten that reaction to a gift card. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at paintyourlife.com. There's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money is refunded, guaranteed. And right now, as a limited time offer, get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. Now, to get this special offer, just text the word WRESTLE to 87204. That's WRESTLE to 87204. Text WRESTLE to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Describe exactly what that means in your opinion. How did he get these guys on board? Was he just super complimentary to them? Is this kind of reliving the old ECW pre-pay-per-view speeches that we fans have heard about? A lot of it like that, yes. But you also have to remember that these guys were coming in as writer's assistants when they first came in. So their job was to do whatever you know the writers needed them to do. So Paul would would bring them in and let's go to Chick-fil-A and come with me. I, I will buy you a chicken sandwich. Um, they made them feel a part of it and would ask them, you know, tell me your, uh, give me your idea. That is excellent. I am going to use that. You will get full credit, sir. And he just, he was Paul. So yeah, a lot of the speeches that you've seen on the different things, Paul could be very persuasive and a very charismatic guy. What would you say was Paul's biggest harm to himself? I mean, did he have one big flaw as the head writer? Was there one single thing, or was it just trying to delegate too much? Not knowing when to, not knowing when to quit, not knowing when to tap out and be able to move on to the next thing. Um, accept a decision and move on. Like it or don't like it, just be able to, to accept it and move on and make it the best you can. If Paul didn't like an idea, he wouldn't, he wouldn't work hard to make it successful. This is where Daniel Peter makes a name for himself. Kurt Angle is challenging the finalists to do a throt, easy for me to say, a squat thrust competition, uh, which you begin in a standing position. Then you move into a squat position with your hands on the ground, kick your feet down into a plank position, but you keep your arms extended and then immediately return to your feet back into the squat position and then stand up. So 
you know, th- th- they do these drills in, in wrestling and sometimes even in football. And the winner here is then going to get a shoot match with Kurt Angle. And unfortunately for Chris Naraki, he wins the competition and Angle pretty much throws him around the ring for about 30 seconds. And I believe he even broke one of his ribs in the process. Uh, and then he pins him before we go on. What are your memories of that? Any, any heat on Kurt? I mean, obviously accidents happen, but this is interfering with a television show. No, you know, there, there was no heat on him. It was, he did what he was supposed to do. The, the issue was that they wanted to have interaction with the WWE talent. So Paul Heyman wanted to have, and we've talked about this on, on the Heyman show, but Paul wanted to have Nunzio. Okay. Who's legit, um, shoot wrestler, uh, very tough kid, but he's, he's smaller. He trained with Billy Robinson and he is a really tough guy, but he wanted Nunzio to stretch all the guys. And that's how it started out. So from there, it went from Nunzio to big show to Mark Henry to Kurt Angle to all these different people. So as we're doing this, we're sitting there and I said, well, what you have to do is uh, I went old school. This is where I did get involved because I went back to the Gene Anderson and style of training guys. One thing that Gene used to do was he would make guys run the steps for hours and he would hit them with, uh, broom handles and shit like that. And then once they ran the steps, he would make them do a thousand squats and gun go run the steps some more and then hit the ropes back and forth. And then, uh, all this other shit before they ever locked up before they ever did anything. And then once they were blown so sky high that their legs were spaghetti, then the guy would beat the shit out of them. Okay. So, okay, now let's wrestle. And the wrestler, of course, being, he would be fresh, ready to go. And he would stretch the guy. The people that came back from that were the ones that really wanted to be in the business. The ones that couldn't handle that, that's how they would weed them out. Not saying that's a good way to do it or not. As a matter of fact, I don't think it's a good way to do it in today's day and age. But for this competition, my idea was, I said, well, we need to run them. We got to blow them up first. So we took them back and there was a ramp uh, backstage and we made them run sprints up and down the ramp. Then we made do these squat thrusts and all this other shit. But we, we had them sprint uh, forever until they were dragging. Then once they ran the sprints, we took them in and fed them fettuccine Alfredo. So the contest in there was uh, you got to eat so many bowls of this heavy, creamy fettuccine Alfredo. So now you're stuffing your face with fettuccine Alfredo. And the only thing that they had to drink, they had like two, uh, not gallons, but the next smaller size of milk that you had to wash it down with. So you had to eat what was in front of you. You had to eat the fettuccine Alfredo and you had to wash it down with the milk. Now, and one of them may have been buttermilk as well. So now you've been running like crazy. You've eaten all this pasta, drank all this milk. Now let's go run again. You run them some more. We've made them do squats. Now it's time for them to go out and do the competition thing. So now they got to do the, the squat thrusts and all that other crap. And the idea was to blow them up. Well, watching all this shit, 
I noticed Daniel Pewter, he wasn't sprinting. He was just kind of jogging, and he, he wasn't going hard at all. Um, plus, he didn't eat. He wasn't eating his pasta. And I told Johnny, I said, hey, I said, this motherfucker over here, you know, he's not eating, and he's not sprinting. Uh, he's conserving his energy. So, you know, they got on him and all this shit, and I don't know that he ate all of everything he was supposed to eat because we had a time constraint, too, that we had to get through, and we had to get these guys done. So they get up there, and the one kid one kid won, and Kurt stretched him. So that, that all happened before they ever even got to the air. But it wasn't done in a way old school. It was guys, guys were cheating, and they were letting them slide. Well, after this, uh, this segment where Kurt's throwing Chris around, he challenges, he gets on the mic and, and challenges everybody who's still in the competition on the outside of the ring and says, Hey, if anybody wants to challenge me, just step right in. And pewter quickly raises his hand and gets in the ring. You guys knew he had a wrestling background and an MMA background. Are you in the back? Are you in the gorilla position? Do you think, oh shit, this isn't a good idea. It was a terrible idea. We told Kurt, you do the one guy and that's it. Nobody else. Okay. And we even show, we even showed him, you know, this guy hasn't been running. This guy hasn't been running. This guy didn't eat his pasta. I said, don't fuck with them. I said, leave them alone. I said, just, uh, I said, if they, if they win and you blow them up in the ring and, um, I said, but you do the one guy and you get out. That's it. Well, Kurt kept going and Kurt, you know, challenged and, and made, made the challenge. And this guy sitting there and Kurt was so mad that somebody would, would want to face him. And at this time, you know, Kurt has just stretched this big 300-pound guy, which takes a lot out of you. And Kurt wasn't the Kurt Angle from 1996 at this point either. So, yeah, it was it was Kurt wasn't supposed to ask anybody uh, who else wants me because then it makes him look like a dumbass if he doesn't take anybody. And... Then he took the guy and the guy got him in an arm lock and then Kurt had to pin him, but it was just, it was shitty all the way around. And, and, and the point is we never should have put ourselves in that position. So let's talk about the actual situation angle and pewter are wrestling for position angle takes pewter down. No surprise there. But in the process, Peter gets angle in a Kimura. And while Peter is on his back, holding Kurt's arm in the move, Angle's attempting a pin. And one of the two referees in the ring, Jimmy Corderas, quickly counts three to end the match. Despite the fact that Peter's shoulders were not down on the mat and he got, he bridged up at two. Now Wade Keller would put in the torch. From backstage, Gerald Briscoe had the ref through his earpiece count a fast pin, recognizing the situation Angle was in. Angle leaped up, got in Peter's face, asked him what he was thinking, and then went into a trash-talking spiel that was meant to look like a veteran browbeating a greenhorn, but in reality, 
Angle was reeling from the realization that he almost got embarrassed in front of a full arena and his colleagues. And everyone sees him as, you know, the creme de la creme. I mean, he's the guy with the real sports credentials. Chat me up here. Do you remember Briscoe giving the order to Corderas to count the pin, recognizing that Angle was in trouble? Well, here's the whole idea behind it, though. You had an amateur wrestler, it was amateur rules, and that was what Kurt was out there doing. But you had dumb fuck referees. That didn't know what an amateur pin was. An amateur pin is not a three count. Right. It's an amateur pin is if you're t- if both shoulders touch the mat, you're out. That's the pin. It's that quick. Um. So the fact that he bridged out on three, who the fuck cares? He was pinned. He was down. So he was pinned, and the referee didn't know any better. And the, I don't think. But at the same time. And I'll defend the referees here. I don't think anybody thought it would get to that point ever. Um, So it just was, it was ill-conceived. It was uh, ill-executed. And Kurt put himself in that position. And the kid, I mean, the kid had his arm locked in. The kid wanted to break his arm. He could have broken his arm. You know, I think that's what is sort of lost on everybody. If this was a real MMA fight, Kurt would have already tapped, but he's in this spot where he can't tap. Like th- th- that's not what this segment's supposed to be. So he's not going to tap. But as you said, I mean, if you really wanted to, he could have cranked that thing and would have been a bad day for Mr. Angle. Yeah, I think he could. I think he had it locked in pretty good. And, and again, you know, I don't, you would have had to break Kurt Angle's arm before you tap. He's just that tough and he's that good. But Why? Why, why put one of your top guys in that position? And that was my, that was my argument. And that was my bitch that I didn't like putting Kurt in that situation at all. Angle told people backstage afterwards that his hand went numb after the scrimmage with Chris. And that's why he had a tougher time taking Peter down. And Keller would write that there wasn't any heat on Peter for doing what he did, saying that everybody knew he could have injured angle, but he didn't. And there were a lot of guys in the back, according to Wade, who felt bad for Angle, considering that he was out there in bully mode, but got shown up, numbness or not. Quote, Kurt was working stiff with them, so Peter went into survival mode, says one WWE insider. That's what he is trained to do and what he should have done. He showed balls and guts, end quote. So chat me up. What was what's your read on the situation backstage? Peter comes through the curtain, Kurt comes through the curtain. What are people saying or thinking? Well, Kurt was pissed off and I was pissed off at Kurt. Um, I was pissed off at Paul Heyman. I was pissed off at Paul Heyman for getting in Kurt's ear and pumping him up so much that that's what Kurt felt that he needed to do. And it just made every, it it made the, the business look bad. It made Kurt look bad and there was, there was no need for it. Uh, It was my anger, I guess is the best way to put it. So I was pissed off at Kurt for letting it go that far. I was pissed off at Heyman for getting him riled up. I was pissed off at Pewter for uh, fucking getting in there. Uh, I had a lot of pissed off to go around. But at the end of the day, it was our fault. It was our fault for allowing it to happen. And we should have gone back to to Laurinaitis and those guys. Man, if you're going to blow them up, blow them up. Don't half-ass do it. And don't come in thinking you forget 
a shooter, a guy that is trained to to beat you and to hurt you, okay? And and that's what Kurt Angle was for so many years. Then we we took that away from him and we taught him how to dance and we taught him how to work with people and not hurt them. So he's not in that mode. He's not in that killer instinct mode. Now you've got a kid who's coming from the world of shoot and hurt and do what you have to do to win, who they have not taught how to dance yet. And you put those guys together. Yes, Kurt, in my opinion, for many, 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 many years, was probably the baddest human being walking the face of the earth and the toughest son of a bitch I've, I've ever seen. However, at this time, man, he was broken down. He was he had nagging injuries, and he, he wasn't that same guy. And to put him in the ring with somebody that was hungry and someone that had been doing nothing but that, it's not fair to Kurt, and it's not, fa- it's not fair to us. And it's just wrong, and it was a bad call. So I don't blame Pewter for what he did. Fuck it. Go out there and make a name for yourself, kid. Here's an opportunity. Go make a name for yourself. Why not? That's what he thought he was supposed to do. Do you think this uh, incident hurt Kurt's rep backstage at all? No. No. Kurt has said that, you know, this is a very awkward situation. His neck is so bad he can't even do five push-ups. But one of the ideas was that Vince wanted him to wrestle all of the finalists and he didn't think he was worried about pewter at all, but he was more concerned about the two big guys. He says at the time he only weighed 207 pounds and his body had started to deteriorate. His neck is just killing him. And he says when he wrestled Chris, that front headlock, he got him in and pushed him over. He jammed his head into the canvas. So his hands go completely numb and he's just trash talking and opened his mouth and says, who else wants some? And then there you go. That's how this whole pewter thing came to be. It is interesting because Kurt would write in his book. The whole thing was, it wasn't supposed to be an ultimate fighting contest. It was a wrestling match, but there was supposed to be a submission, but he was a moron and he put his back on the mat and it wasn't supposed to be a three count. It's supposed to be a one count, like an amateur wrestling. And let me interrupt there. And, and that was, and that was the fail safe on everything. Because when we talked to everybody beforehand, it's like, it is amateur rules because there was no doubt, no matter who it was, he can take that, him Kurt, down. that yeah. Kurt couldn't pin him. No, that Kurt could pin him. Right, right, right. So that was the fail safe on everything. So that's why, you know, when, when the referee counted three, it's like, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah. It's, it's a one slap and it, and it's out. So we had talked about that and that was the fail safe that no matter what happened, everybody felt confident that Kurt could get them on their back and that Kurt could pin them. I do think it's fun though, that you're fired up at the referees for doing a three count, but they're in a professional wrestling ring at a professional wrestling show, wearing a professional wrestling outfit. Where they've been doing amateur shit. (laughs) And you're like, you fucking dumbass. Doing exactly what we've sold tickets for and you've done your whole life. Yeah. Doing a goddamn. Hey, hey, 
hey, we're doing a reality show inside of goddamn entertainment show with an entertainer and a shooter who's real, who goddamn, we want real rules, motherfucker. What's confusing for you, shooter boy? You know, that's shit. That's what's fun to me, though, is is realistically, if he would have done a one count, the crowd's going to be like, well, he didn't pin him. That was only one. Because we, as wrestling fans, we're sure. at a pro wrestling show. We've been trained to believe a pin is three. He kicked out at one or whatever. So anyway, it's just silly. It's, it's, it's fun to hear you silly. get, but my favorite part is you're fired up. But you I am. I'm fucking hot. That is so good. Motherfucker. Um, I guess we should talk about the end here, but before we do, let's talk about Paul Heyman, because I had never heard the story when you were saying a little earlier about the whole Kurt angle incident, that it was Paul who was in Kurt's ear, getting him fired up. How much blame do you think Heyman had? I mean, had Heyman not gotten in his ear and really firing Kurt angle up, would he have made the secondary challenge to pewter? Would any of this have even happened? Had, had Kurt not got in, had Heyman had not Paul got, not got in Kurt's ear, Kurt wouldn't have even been out in the ring in the first place. I see. So it was, it, in my opinion, it was, it was Paul who got Kurt fired up to go to Vince to demand to be in that spot and convince Vince that he was the one to be in that spot. Peter says some of his best memories of OVW are when Paul came down and they got to work together. He said he really likes Paul and he's super blessed to have Paul in his life. Even all this time later, cold Turkey can be great on sandwiches, but there is a better way to break your bad habits. We're not talking about some weird mind voodoo from your crazy neighbor or some stories from Marty Gennady. We're talking about our sponsor fume and they look at the problem in a different way. Not everything in a bad habit is wrong. So instead of a drastic, uncomfortable change, why not just remove the bad from your habit. Well, Fume is an innovative award-nominated device that does just that. Instead of electronics, Fume is completely natural. Instead of vapor, Fume uses flavored air. And instead of harmful chemicals, Fume uses natural, delicious flavors. You get it. Instead of bad, Fume is good. It's a habit you're free to enjoy. And it makes replacing your bad habit easy. Your fume comes with adjustable airflow dials and it's designed with movable parts and magnets for fidgeting, you know, giving your fingers a lot to do, which is helpful for de-stressing or anxiety while you're trying to break that habit. And I have to admit, my wife was a little skeptical of this at first, but buddy, she loved the flavor way more flavor than she expected. She really enjoyed the crisp mint, but they've got tons of other flavors too, like white cranberry. They got maple pepper. How about sparkling grapefruit, orange, vanilla, raspberry, lemon, so many different flavors for you to choose from. You'll also notice that it feels great. It's well-weighted. It's perfectly balanced. It is fun to fidget with. It's also made of beautiful, real wood. And it's a shape that, I don't know, you just feel cool using it. Here's the reality. Stopping is something we all put off because it's hard. But switching to fume, man, it's easy, enjoyable, and even fun. Fume has served over a hundred thousand customers and has thousands of success stories. And there's no reason that can't be you join fume and accelerating humanity's breakup from destructive habits by picking up the journey pack today, head to tryfume.com and use the code wrestle to save 10% when you get the journey pack today. Let's try F U M and use the code wrestle 
Save an additional 10% off your order today. One more time, tryfume.com slash wrestle and use the code wrestle to save an additional 10% off your order today. There's a, a now infamous match on heat from Pittsburgh. Public enemy gets a win by DQ, but boy, they didn't fucking feel like winners. Tell the story of how in the world we got here and, uh, the fallout from this match. Well, they had a finish for the match where the acolytes were going to put public enemy through a table right before they went out to the ring. The public enemy were going out to the ring first and they told Ron and John that they, Hey, we're going to take out that table spot at the end, which was the finish. So they told them that. And then they went out and John turned around to Ron and Ron's like, what do you say? He says, he said, take out the table spot at the end. He says, so they don't want to do the table spot. He says, I, I guess not. He goes, hmm. Well, fuck, we'll just bring the tables to them. And they made sure they got the table spot in. Pretty brutal. When they come back through the curtain, what does Vince or the office or the boys, what's the reaction to the acolytes and the public enemy? Well, first of all, I was going to see just, uh, you know, who was there when, when everybody came back, obviously John and Ron were ready for whatever might happen. And public enemy came back and walked right up to them, shook their hands, said, thank you very much. They didn't want any more of that. So I think everybody, you know, that just kind of told everybody where they were and public enemy, man, they weren't getting over. Um, talk to me about what you just said that showed everybody where they were. Well, that they, you know, they're supposed to be tough guys. They want it. They, they're, they're fine and dandy doing everything in the world to somebody else, but taking it is a different situation. So they were happy giving it out. They didn't want to take it. Is it not, now, fair, is it not fair to say that on some level, uh, there's like an unspoken pact between wrestlers and I'm not a fucking wrestler. So I'm speaking way out of turn here, but I've heard that the, the understanding in this brotherhood of wrestlers is that. I'm looking out for your body and trusting you with right. mine. Yeah. And when one of the guys sort of goes into business for himself and beats the fuck out of another guy, that's okay. Well, when the other guy's not doing what was agreed to do and the other guy is, is fighting you to get to the point. Yeah, it is okay. Because at that point, uh, it's not, you know, they weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing. And so they were trying to go into business for themselves, them being public enemy. And APA was trying to get to the, to the story that was supposed to be in that match. Okay. So what's, what's, uh, what's Vince McMahon think about somebody getting the fuck beat out of them on a show like this? Well, it was, Hey, they, you know what? I mean, I hate to say it. Cause I, uh, Johnny, I didn't really know Johnny at all. Uh, other than meeting him a few times. So I, I, I can't tell you much about Johnny, but Ted Petty, uh, to me was a stand up guy and Ted was, a. I always liked Ted a lot. And I thought that he was, was always a good stand up guy. They, they got in their head that, you know, they couldn't do certain things. didn't want to do it. And it was, that was their detriment. So Vince was, Vince was kind of done with him at that point And, the boys will take care of the boys. And at that time in the business, 
that's how things happen. You, you let the, the dressing room police itself without management having to get involved and things pretty much usually tend to work out. Is the business like that anymore? I don't think so. And I think that that's just the society is not like it used to be. I remember uh, doing a going to my kid's school one time, meeting with the principal and, and saying that, you know, what's wrong with the kids today is nobody's been punched in the mouth. And boy, you would have thought that I'd just done something bad to his mother or something. But the society, um, kids in school, they don't go behind the supermarket and fight. And then once they do back in the old days, you had a fight with somebody. It was over. Came back to school the next day. The loser had a black eye. The winner was okay. And and you moved on. That settled it. Whatever difference you had, whatever bullshit there was, you fought it out. You had a winner. You had a loser next. And I, in this society, everybody gets a fucking trophy. So he's taking some time off. And the next time we see anything about The Undertaker is in the May 30th edition of The Observer. Uh, and Smoky Mountain Wrestling, it's written, Brian Lee has changed his hair color and started growing a small beard to get ready for his evil Undertaker role. Brian Lee was backstage preparing for his Undertaker evil twin role. Based on television, it appears he'll be managed by Ted DiBiase. So we're tuning up for the Under Faker here, and he debuts at television tapings on May 24th in Canton, Ohio. And then the following day, he's in Erie, Pennsylvania, he does have Ted DiBiase as a heel manager, and he's wrestling as The Undertaker. Meltzer writes, Lee's been made up to look like The Undertaker with his hair dyed reddish and grown long and stringy and wearing makeup, even practicing copying Undertaker's walk. Based on reports we got from the shows, there were definitely some fans, but they were in the minority, who believed that Lee was the original Undertaker. There were loud BS chants in at least one of the cities, which will have to be dubbed over before this airs. Supposedly, most of the fans realize once the match starts, this isn't the original Undertaker. Uh, and when he does interviews, it gives it away to all those that were there live. But even so, even with DiBiase, he received a lot more cheers than boos just because of the entrance music. However, we're told on interviews they're going to dub Mark Calloway's voice onto the track, so it creates confusion among the fans. So he will have Callaway's voice on the interviews. When the match is there, supposedly the angle will be something to the effect of the heel announcer will claim it's the real Undertaker, and the face announcer won't be sure. Lee's hair is in front of his face during the entire match, but at the finish, he lifts his hair up for a brief minute with the idea being, if you weren't sure, now you're sure. Naturally, this will lead to the Undertaker confronting him to an Undertaker versus Undertaker match, most likely at SummerSlam, we're told the long-term deal is for Lee to turn on DiBiase and the two Undertakers be together. So there's some rumor and innuendo for you from the Wrestling Observer Newsletter, but what say you? God, I, I don't even know where to start. Um, the funny thing is, is that because somebody wrote it down that it is forever believed as fact. Well, first of all, with Undertaker being out for a while, the discussion becomes, how do we bring Undertaker back? What do we do? Who is the opponent? Who's the right guy for the Undertaker to come back? Now, the natural thing is to do something with Yokozuna, but weren't necessarily really ready for that just yet. 
And the discussion was, who do we have ready for The Undertaker? And somebody might have made a comment along the lines of, well, it would be nice if we had another Undertaker, you know, type character to, to face The Undertaker. And Brian Lee and Undertaker were good friends. And I'd recently been around Brian, and people had mistaken Brian for The Undertaker when we were out. Because they had both had the same hair, they had the same beard. And I started laughing. I said, what if we had The Undertaker? Like, what do you mean? So what if we make another Undertaker? And I got pictures. I had Brian send pictures in and, and all this stuff and call Taker. I said, what do you think about this? The idea being that you announce that The Undertaker is returning and the announcement is made by the guy who originally, you know, brought finance the Undertaker coming into the WWE, the Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase. Right. And by God, I'm bringing him back. I, I, <laughs> you know, I've got the Undertaker, and he, you know, I've bought him. He's bought and paid for. So without the comparison of Mark Calloway standing next to Brian Lee. A lot of people thought that Brian Lee was the Undertaker. So we had we had a tattoo expert come in, and we had uh, tattoos put on Brian Lee's arm, ex the exact same tattoos as the Undertaker. As a matter of fact, Jerry Lawler sat at the makeup station with Brian Lee and drew and put color in the tattoos because – we didn't think that the, the tattoo artists that had put on the temporary tattoos, that they looked good enough. And Lawler sat there and said, I can fix that. And Lawler sat there with a pen and made the tattoos on wow. Brian Lee's arms. Wow. And it was, I mean, oh, you talk about a great, Jerry Lawler is a magnificent artist. But Lawler did a lot of that work. So the idea was you bring back The Undertaker and... Brian Lee never cut a fucking promo, Dave Meltzer. The voice dub was always The Undertaker in the live houses everywhere. Brian never opened his mouth and cut promos. That was always an Undertaker dub. And, you know, that's why I get so upset when when I hear those that name come out of your mouth because he, he gets it from somebody who was there who sends him a report and all of a sudden it's fact. Um, but we thought, well, shit, if people, if, if we could hide it enough, we even talked about doing the matches in like a purple hue so that you could disguise them even more. Wow. So that you never really knew. And that when, when DiBiase came out, man, it was, it was so disguised. You thought, shit, I'm looking at the undertaker. There was, there was even thought at times about doing having the undertaker play the underfaker you know what i mean so you're really confused now you got mark calloway out there who With is DBI playing the yeah yeah so the the problem was was that in in between our times taker had gotten more tattoos the real taker 
So it's like, shit, we've already debuted this other guy. He's got the one arm, and people hadn't seen the other tattoos. Nobody thought to call Undertaker and say, don't get any more tattoos. You know, when Taker got his first tattoo, I told him, dude, you, you probably just ruined your career right there. <laughs> Why would you do that? Don't get any, whatever you do, don't get any more tattoos. That was my advice to him in Binghamton, New York. I'll never forget it until he listened to me. So Bruce is on vacation, and I can only hope that means he's putting some miles on that Peter meat. Thanks to Blue Chew, let's talk about sex, boys and girls. Remember the days when you were always ready to go? Well, now you can be again thanks to Blue Chew. Blue Chew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredients as Viagra, Cialis, and Levitra, but in chillable form and at a fraction of the cost. Take these dudes anytime, day or night, so you can plan ahead or be ready whenever an opportunity arises. Roll Tide. And then the process is simple, y'all. You sign up at BlueChew.com. You consult with one of their licensed medical providers. And once you're approved, you receive your prescription within days. And here's the best part. It's all done online. That means no visits to the doctor's office, no awkward conversation, no waiting in line at the pharmacy. Bluetooth tablets are made in the USA, prepared and shipped directly to your door, all in a discreet package. Bluetooth wants to help you have better sex. Discover your options at bluechew.com. Chew it and do it. And boy, do we have a special deal for our listeners. Try Bluetooth free when you use our promo code WRESTLE at checkout. Just pay $5 shipping. That's bluechew.com. The promo code is WRESTLE and you'll receive your first month free. Visit bluechew.com for more details and important safety information. And we thank Bluetooth for sponsoring today's podcast. And Bruce's ding dong. But <clears throat> the idea was a few weeks uh, for the underfaker to be out there. Hang on, let's circle back. Why did you think he would end his career if he got a tattoo? Well, because it was it was a tattoo of himself with the skull and crossbones and everything. And I thought, you know, now you can't do anything else. If this Undertaker thing doesn't work out for you, kid, <laughs> you're, you're you're now branded with this fucking tattoo. What are you thinking, you big, dumb, red, redheaded son of a bitch? Yeah. Needless to say, he didn't take my advice. And I think, you know what? I'm going to go out on a limb here. I think it's worked out all right for him. It worked out okay. So he's I think it worked out okay. The plan was to spend a few weeks with Underfaker. The, the plan was to spend a few weeks with the Underfaker. And like I said, we even talked about switching them out and, and actually having uh, the real Undertaker be the Underfaker a few times to really fuck people up. We, we didn't do that. We just had Brian Lee out there the whole time. But the and, – and the idea was never to have them – fucking be a team and do all that other bullshit after turning baby face on Ted DiBiase. That's just somebody saying, but here's what Melcher can say after we didn't do that. Well, they changed plans. Yeah. No, that was never the plan. But as we got into it, as as always, we, we had Brian Lee come to the uh, studio and get in the ring and, and work with Undertaker to get his mannerisms down pat as close as we could. And until, for those who know, they knew. For those who didn't, they just weren't sure. And without Undertaker there to compare, I don't think as many people as Dave Meltzer would like to believe were were not fooled if i'm saying that right well here's the i think deal. more people were fooled than not a couple of years prior to this you know people were saying oh that's not the real ultimate warrior he's dead this Correct. is the second one so you know right it is what it is so, it, it is what it is in reverse 
but as we we got into it and we did the whole we did the whole build up to find the undertaker we brought paul bearer back that was the first time that we wanted to say hey that's not the real undertaker right and then the search was on to find the real undertaker and this was probably some of the, the this was my absolute greatest experience ever with with a celebrity from outside of the wrestling world to come into our world, and that was working with Leslie Nielsen. Yeah, to I was, find I, the Undertaker. I was going to get there, but let's just talk. Go about for it. it. Go ahead. No, you no, you go with where you're going, and we'll get to it when you're ready. Um, I want to talk about the decision for it to be Brian Lee. Uh, there's lots of rumor and innuendo that he is somehow loosely related to the Undertaker. Just set that record straight. No, I don't think so at all. Okay. Um, they did a superstar taping on June 21st in Pennsylvania and on the taping, Paul Barrett did an interview saying he's been in contact lately with the undertaker on the raw episode that aired on June 27th. Gorilla Monsoon accidentally refers to Brian Lee as the new undertaker. Uh, and apparently there were already, uh, mentions on television of the pizza boxes. Even though the fans aren't supposed to know at this point that there are two of them. How does this happen? He was a new Undertaker. We had already started Paul Bearer coming out questioning that fact. But I'm saying at this so point. Monsoon being, Monsoon being Monsoon and being a babyface announcer wants to be the first one to tell you. It's a new Undertaker. I get you on that. I guess what I'm saying is they're delivering pizzas by this point with both Undertakers on there. Advertising SummerSlam, and you haven't even seen the real Undertaker return to confront the new Undertaker on TV. But if you ordered a fucking works pizza or a pizza, then you knew the main event. Yeah. No problem with that. But it was no. He figured that that would be minuscule in comparison to the overall scope of things. Well, he wanted the quarter million dollars. Damn right. Okay. Um, King's Court happens on the August 2nd edition of a Superstars taping. And here we have Ted DiBiase and Paul Bearer out. And DiBiase calls his Undertaker out, who then starts choking Paul Bearer. The lights go out, and then they flicker back on. Bearer's outside the ring, and Mark Calloway is inside the ring for the first time since January. And he squashes Kwong. Quang. So I need to correct that. I know you like that. Uh, then Luger wrestles the evil Undertaker, who sits up after Luger's, Luger's moves. But finally, when Luger caught him in the torture rack, Bam Bam Bigelow had to interfere for the DQ. Uh, the good Undertaker does a walkout, and the two Undertakers do a stare down before the evil one backs out and leaves. Uh, and then, of course, the Undertaker, we all know and love, squashes Bigelow with a choke slam in just a minute and three seconds. Uh, the next week in the observer or two weeks later, we see Dave, Wright. The headline angle undertaker versus undertaker has gotten so cold that the reports we've gotten are that it will be pronounced dead after the first and only match from what we can understand. And what seemingly be, seems to be confirmed by hints dropped by Vince McMahon on the live Sunday call in show on the USA network, which was a major disaster, by the way, are that this angle talked about two months ago as being the res- re- resurrection of big box office for the company is officially being dropped. 
McMahon said, almost matter-of-factly, that it would be the one and only meeting of the two Undertakers, and after that show, there would be only one. Whether it was the Leslie Nielsen skits, which I thought were entertaining, but I couldn't see it adding any sales, were falling flat, uh, or simply the idea of copying the most over and unique character of the 90s only dilutes the impact of the original, it's pretty well acknowledged that this idea was born dead. From what we've been told, the decision was made to remove Brian Lee from house show bookings for September, and he would return sometime very soon under a new name with a new look and as a new character. So let's talk about how that comes about, because as a kid, every kid I know was into this, Undertaker versus Undertaker. And Undertaker versus Yokozuna had been drawing awesome. Why did this not rub Vince the right way? I don't think he was totally convinced with Brian's work being that convincing in the ring doing Undertaker. So the thought of, and and just for the record, he says that there was never any plans to do more than one. So it's not like, oh my God, he killed it. It was always the plan to do a one-off. This was Undertaker's return. It was a way to bring him back and have one match, one attraction, one time. Well, but Goldberg was brought back for one match, one attraction, one time at Survivor Series, and that went well. So because it went well, they stretched it out. Why? But it would it- be different if we were bringing Mark Calloway back as The Undertaker. It was The whole idea was simply for Undertaker to reenter and to have a dragon to slay, slay him, and then be on to the next thing. It was simply an attraction, and that's all it ever was meant to be. It was never meant to be anything more beyond SummerSlam. What type of deal would you guys have negotiated with Brian Lee here? Would it have just been, we're going to bring you in for three months? Or Yeah, we- and if it work out well, then we might have something for you on down the road in a different gimmick, but we'd have to change your look and do something else with you down the road. Meanwhile, over at WCW, the uh, August 24th Clash of the Champions is Hulk Hogan versus Ric Flair, and it's the highest-rated television special on TBS in all of 1994. Uh, It gets a 4.5 rating for the first hour, a 7.7 rating for the second hour, and it's the highest-rated pro wrestling show on cable since um, the 1990. Mountain Madness Clash of the Champions, which drew a 5.0. Uh, and probably the second most widely viewed pro wrestling match ever uh, behind Ric Flair and Lex Luger and Sting and Black Scorpion, also in 90. So WCW's business takes a real shot in the arm with this Hogan signing. Meanwhile, SummerSlam is on August 29th, and it's the first ever event at the United Center in Chicago which Bruce just said was too fucking expensive for the WWF on our WrestleMania 13 episode, if you remember. But the WWF ran the first ever event there and drew a sellout crowd of 23,000 folks. Uh, Dave argues that there were reports that it was heavily papered and all over the radio uh, the day of the show, saying that there were free tickets available at different shops. Meltzer does a poll, and everyone agrees The worst match on SummerSlam is Undertaker versus Undertaker. He writes, The WWF's lack of talent depth showed itself once again at SummerSlam. A well-produced show with a phenomenal title match 
followed by possibly the worst main event in pay-per-view history. What do you think of that? Fuck Dave Meltzer. And first of all, you know, going back to your comment about the United Center, we did run the United Center, and the WrestleMania we were talking about took place after this event. Correct. This we had run first. it, and it was way too expensive. We didn't, we didn't like it, and we liked Rosemont for the ambiance and everything else, and it was a cheaper building to run. But as far, you know, there's a lot of things, and it's real easy to sit behind your computer or your typewriter and judge when you've never taken a bump, you've never been in the ring, and you've never put your own balls on the line to promote something or actually produce something other than, like I said, sit behind your computer screen and sit there and critique and bitch and moan about somebody um, like Meltzer and these, these fake news people do. So fuck him and his goddamn opinion, because what they don't know is what did take place behind the scenes. And what they don't know is what we did have planned and what we didn't get to have come across, because the match, like I said, it was designed to be a one off. It was designed to be a gimmick match. It was designed to simply bring Undertaker back and have him slay a dragon. The. The match, because Bret Hart and Owen Hart had a cage match earlier in the show that went 20 minutes heavy. So all of a sudden, you have a match at the very end of the night with Undertaker and and a guy who is nervous as shit, who in his mind is auditioning for a job in Brian Lee, who has their match now condensed into roughly about 10 or 12 minutes, whatever the hell it was, so much of it was the entrance. So much of it was the pantomime. So much of it was the build that we didn't have time to tell because of things going longer earlier in the show. So, again, it sounds like I'm making excuses, and I am, because that's what happened, and shit happens. So it wasn't great. It wasn't uh, it wasn't the match of the year. It didn't do four stars or six stars in the fucking Tokyo Dome. I don't give a fuck. It was an attraction. It was meant to be an attraction. It was meant to be a way to bring Undertaker back and have him slay a dragon on top at a pay-per-view. And didn't accomplish that, didn't deliver, but there were extenuating circumstances that, that made that happen. How hot was uh, Undertaker at Brett when he walks through the back and knows that he went 20 minutes long and just slaughtered Pretty fucking man. hot. He was hot. What's that sound like? Don't do an he, impression. Just tell me. No, he was fucking hot. I, I no, You know what? Nobody, nobody was there for the confrontation because no one wanted to be there. But there, they, Taker did go and speak to Brett. Just let him know, hey, he wasn't happy with it. I mean, well, I don't know. It wasn't heated. Taker's not that kind of a guy. But he did have a conversation with him that night. And no, and no, no one was there. So no one was witness. Only people that know what happened in that is Undertaker and Brett. Meltzer would write, what seemed like a cute idea materialized into watering down the drawing power of the company's top attraction. Another cute idea, like using Leslie Nielsen of the Naked Gun movies at the, uh, and at this show, his sidekick George Kennedy in search of The Undertaker flopped just as bad as the two were ha- hampered by an incredibly vapid script, as if someone came up with the bones of an idea, but nobody had any of the meat, they did the idea anyway. When it was over, the show, even though it had a few great angles and one excellent match, came off due to the last impression as a lackluster major event. I'm of the opinion that if the Undertaker-Undertaker match had been put on 
in the third slot on the card, its impact at the end would have been minimal, and fans leaving with a cage match would have left on a much brighter note, and a thumbs-up ratio would have been far better. My, my only guess is that The Undertaker Undertaker wouldn't bomb like it did, obviously, and they like to end shows with a babyface conquering all, and the cage match ended with a face getting destroyed at the end. But that mindset ended up leaving a show on a flat note rather than a high note. The natural comparison to The Clash a few days earlier, where The Clash had much more exciting excitement and much more meaning. Uh, ultimately, of course, The Undertaker won uh, after 9 minutes and 10 seconds. Undertaker Mark Calloway won against Undertaker Bradley. Well, Meltzer can take his, sh- his thumb and shove it up his ass. In the match, they do a seven-minute uh, ring entrance with Paul Bear coming out alone, and then the co- coffin that Callaway was buried in at the Royal Rumble was wheeled out by some hooded men, and uh, inside the casket was... Druids, pal, druids. Uh, who played the druids here? Just uh, Fuck if I know, just guys. It was me, Austin. Uh, however, <laughs> that's what I was hoping you'd go for. Uh, however, in the casket was a giant urn, and when Bear opened the urn, we got a nice thunder and lightning show. Finally, Calloway showed up. The special effects was good, but it was done the minute the bell rang. One guy in the ultra-slow motion has limitations. Two guys doing it kills the match. It didn't help that Lee seemed lost in the ring, and that the two didn't look enough alike, and the size difference was noticeable. It was as, every, as if everyone knew the ending once Calloway showed up. No heat at all. Even McMahon had to acknowledge it, trying to get over the crowd was stunned into silence because there was no tension in the air, so it was just dull silence, not stunned silence. Leaves the chokeslam and a tombstone, but Callaway sat up both times. Callaway reversed the second tombstone, then delivered two more, crossed Lee's arms, and pinned him. He then rolled him into the casket, thereby killing the gimmick. Word we get is Lee will return with a new look as a biker character with no acknowledgement of this prior role. Leslie Nielsen and George Kennedy ended the show with a skit as weak as the match. Negative one star. So, your thoughts on the match, the build-up, and Leslie Nielsen and George Kennedy, which I know you really enjoyed. The match was horrible. The match was horrible, but the match you know, had its limitations, and they had to chop a whole lot of it out that they had. The match was one of those that had to be laid out and tell a long story and much longer than what it lasted going out there. And Brian probably was lost because what they had planned and what they had worked out prior to that, they were ad living and they were just trying to get through it and not have a finish take place as they were off the air. So we had to get the damn thing done. We didn't have a network at that time. We couldn't go over. We had to get done by uh, 10 55 at night. So, yeah, it sucked. It wasn't great. But the I'll stand by it. Hey, it was my story. If you don't like it, great. You didn't like it. It's not everybody's cup of tea. It was a story to bring The Undertaker back and to have an Undertaker versus Undertaker. The feeling being that the greatest foe of The Undertaker would be himself looking at himself in the mirror and having to face the old evil Undertaker. Uh, execution? Probably could have been better, but then again, that's Monday morning quarterbacking in hindsight being 2020. We we had fun with it. We we did what we wanted to do, and 
Like I said, it was always intended to be a one-off and a way to bring Undertaker back. The Leslie Nielsen involvement, I thought that those skits leading up to it were some of the uh, best stuff we'd ever done. They were clever. They were well done. They were well-written, well-produced by David Sahadi, and people to this day still talk about it. And Leslie Nielsen was an absolute pro in every sense of the word from him being early on set and working with us to him going to the uh, all-nude bar in Bridgeport, Connecticut, where all they wore were knee pads and just being an all-around great guy. And to tell you what a great guy he was, George Kennedy, who's one of his best friends, we had we had no deal with George Kennedy. But Leslie Nielsen asked us to use George Kennedy that day because George was in a in a bad way at that point in his life. And he said, just use him, make him feel loved, because I'd like to have him be a part of this. And Leslie Nielsen offered to pay George out of his pay. And Vince, of course, wouldn't do that, George. Uh, Vince paid George, and all was well. But I just was always impressed by that. And Leslie Nielsen is my favorite celebrity I ever worked with. Wow, that's quite a statement right there. Yep. He was great. He was great. But it was what it was, and it it uh, could have been better, but a lot of things could have been better. And shit happens sometimes. StarCast returns to the Chicago area this Labor Day weekend. Tickets for StarCast 6 are now on sale at StarCast.com and include AEW all-out ticket bundle options. Join us at the Hyatt Regency Schaumburg starting Friday night, September 1st, for unique fan experiences with wrestling legends from yesterday and superstars from today. Follow StarCast events on Twitter for the latest updates about all things StarCast. StarCast 6 is brought to you in part by ProWrestlingCrate.com. Monthly mystery crates for diehard wrestling fans. Plans start at $9.95 and are the perfect gift for any wrestling fan. Visit ProWrestlingCrate.com today. Hey guys, need to call a quick time out here. Wanted to tell your listeners what I've been telling my listeners over at OU didn't know for a while now about all the cool things happening over at AdsFreeShows.com. Conrad sits down with a pioneer of wrestling television production, director Dan Bynum, who discusses his journey through WCW, ROH, MLW, and where it all began for him, world class. What really was the uh, the thing that, that catapulted it was, one, working with Ric Flair. He came to the territory and wrestled with the Von Erich boys and gave us so much uh, gravitas and two, the greatest feud in the history of wrestling, the Freebird Von Erich feud. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we were there at the hottest time with the hottest show, and we took over the world. The Yeti, Ron Reese, sits down with Ad Free Shows members to talk about his infamous night at Halloween Havoc and how it was received by the boys in the back. Oh, no, I remember, like, Arn Anderson told me that that was the drizzling shits, and Dusty Rose was like, that was the worst thing I've ever seen. I'm just like, hey, thanks. <laughs> That's just a small taste of what we got waiting for you. With four levels to choose from, see for yourself why Ads Free Shows is the best value in wrestling today. Sign up now at adsfreeshows.com.
John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? driver? I think I can get an extra five to ten. What if I give you 15 to 20? You pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.